You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. The French Revolution set Europe ablaze. It was an age of enlightenment and progress, but also of tyranny and oppression. It was an age of glory and an age of tragedy. One man stood above it all. This was the Age of Napoleon. I'm Everett Rummage, host of the Age of Napoleon podcast. Join me as I examine the life and times of one of the most fascinating and enigmatic characters in modern history. Look for the Age of Napoleon wherever you find your podcasts. Hello, and thank you for joining the American Revolution. This week, episode 299, The Siege of Yorktown. Last week, we covered the naval battle that gave the French Navy control of the waters around Yorktown, Virginia. The week before that, we covered the march of the armies under Continental General George Washington and French General Rochambeau to confront the British Army under General Cornwallis at Yorktown. Washington and Rochambeau arrived in Williamsburg, Virginia on September 14, 1781. Their respective armies were still marching several days away. Washington met with Lafayette, who was already commanding a force in the field there, and received the good news that the French fleet had defeated the British and controlled the Chesapeake. With the combination of French fleets under Admirals de Grasse and de Barras, the French had 36 ships of the line to prevent any British naval interference. Admiral de Grasse, however, reminded Washington that the clock was ticking. The armies had to defeat the British at Yorktown within a month, after which de Grasse was taking his fleet back to the West Indies. Washington sailed out to meet de Grasse on his flagship, the Ville de Paris. He got the Admiral to agree to extend his stay until the end of October, and to send a few ships up the Chesapeake to hurry the arrival of the armies. In the British camp, General Cornwallis was mindful of the forces arrayed against him. He sent messages to General Clinton in New York, saying that he could hold out for about six weeks and was anxiously awaiting the promised relief fleet once Admiral Digby arrived in New York from London with additional ships. Cornwallis had offloaded cannons from several British ships in the Chesapeake and aligned others so that they could fire on an enemy if it tried to storm the British defenses at Yorktown. The British position on the high ground covered a line of bluffs. To their rear was the York River. Cornwallis had scuttled some ships near the bank to prevent the enemy from trying to land ships or moving ship-based cannons too close to shore. Across the York River, the British also held Gloucester Point, where Bannister Tarleton had taken command. The fortified position was initially set up to control ship access to and from the Chesapeake Bay. By this time, it was still being held as a possible means of evacuation if the enemy overran Yorktown. About 1,000 of the British Army deployed there in Gloucester Point, with seven redoubts to protect the soldiers and prevent any enemy advance by land. Cornwallis had about 8,300 soldiers under his command, his army had built a line of defense around the main defenses at Yorktown, anchored by ten redoubts containing cannons and connected by trenches. It was enough to prevent a direct assault on his position, but it would inevitably fall under a slower siege against a much larger enemy. Cornwallis had to place his hopes on the promise by Clinton to send a relief fleet. 
On September 22nd, Cornwallis tried to damage the French Navy in the Chesapeake. The British deployed five fire ships at night, sailing the burning ships into the French fleet, hoping to catch some of them on fire. Several of the ships got close, but the French Navy managed to avoid them. The following day, news arrived that the British Admiral Digby was expected to arrive in New York any day with ten more ships of the line. Washington dismissed this intelligence. Even if true, the French fleet would still outnumber the British. Admiral de Grasse, however, was more concerned. He recalled how difficult it was to get his fleet out of the Chesapeake when the British fleet under Admiral Graves had arrived. As I said last week, if Graves had been more aggressive, he probably could have defeated the larger French fleet before it could assemble properly. To prevent that risk, de Grasse wanted to withdraw all of his ships out of the Chesapeake and into the open Atlantic. He even considered sailing up to New York to attack the British fleet there. Washington would have welcomed a French fleet in New York six months earlier. However, doing this now would ruin his plans for the siege, which relied on the French naval cannons for support and French ships to transport troops across the water. Washington sailed out to meet with de Grasse again to dissuade the admiral from leaving. Fortunately, the fear subsided when it turned out that Digby arrived with only three more ships of the line. The French fleet would remain in place. Washington had hoped to use the French ships to harass the enemy from the York River and gather intelligence on enemy positions. De Grasse, however, refused to risk any ships by bringing them that close to the enemy cannons. By the end of the month, the Allies had their soldiers and equipment ready to go. Rochambeau had marched 5,000 French soldiers from Newport and added those to the over 3,000 that de Grasse had carried from the West Indies. So France had more than 8,000 soldiers ready to fight. Washington had managed to march close to 3,000 Continentals from New York when combined with the Continental forces already in Virginia under Generals Lafayette, Wayne, and von Steuben, he managed to assemble a Continental force that was close to 6,000. This was more Continentals than Washington had under his command since the Battle of Monmouth three years earlier. In addition, another 3,000 or so of militia also assembled to participate. Among them was Washington's 25-year-old stepson, Jack Custis. On September 28th, the combined armies marched out of Williamsburg to confront the British at Yorktown. Although time was of the essence, both of the commanders agreed that a direct assault on British defenses would be far too devastating. Instead, they had opted for a traditional siege. This meant digging a series of trenches, getting ever closer to the enemy lines, and eventually pounding down their defenses to the point where they would have to surrender, or be overrun. On the night of October 5th, the Continentals began laying out the lines for a trench about 600 yards from the British lines. Since this was within artillery range of the enemy, it had to be done quietly, and it pretty much completed before the night was over. The weather was cloudy, and a steady rain helped to cover their activities. General Washington personally visited the digging to ensure that everything was going according to plan. The planners disguised their work before morning, and the following night, the Continentals deployed a group of pickets in front of the lines to block any enemy patrols, and then began digging the trenches in earnest. To distract the enemy, they lit bonfires on another part of the line, 
and it is hoped that made the British think the activity was taking place near the fires, and they directed their cannon fire there during the night. Meanwhile, the sappers and miners began digging their trenches in the dark and rain. By the following morning, the Continentals had dug a trench about 2,000 yards long with four cannon emplacements. The work continued in daylight, and that brought cannon fire, as the British were now aware of the presence of enemy trenches. Colonel Alexander Hamilton commanded a regiment assigned to protect the trenches. Hamilton, you may recall, had been Washington's aide for much of the war. The two had parted under bad terms a few months earlier, and Hamilton had been concerned that Washington would refuse to give him a combat command. Washington, however, was never one to hold a grudge, and allowed Hamilton to take this position of honor and danger. Over the next few days, the Continentals continued their work on the trenches. In order to prevent being hit by enemy fire, they deployed lookouts to watch for when a British cannon was being lit. The lookout would call for everyone to duck down in the trenches so that the cannonballs would usually fly safely over their heads. By October 10th, the trenches were completed. They had placed 41 cannons, howitzers, and mortars in the trenches. These were not just small field cannons. They included 24-pounders that could obliterate enemy buildings and fortifications. Washington was given the honor of firing the first shot. According to an American who was being held behind British lines at the time, that first shot crashed through a home, killing the British commissary general as he sat at a dining room table with other officers, including General Cornwallis. When the Allies had arrived, the British pulled back from some of their defensive lines. Cornwallis did not want to let some of his relatively isolated redoubts around Yorktown become targets for American or French raids. General Clinton had promised him reinforcements by October 5th, so his goal was to keep his army concentrated and rebuff any enemy attacks until help arrived. By putting his entire army in a relatively small area of about 500 by 1,200 yards, he created an inviting target for Allied artillery. Cannonballs and shells rained down heavily on the British lines both day and night for several days. As most of the buildings were destroyed, many British soldiers moved down to the shore of the river and tried to dig shallow bunkers in the sand. Cornwallis himself had a bunker built in the garden next to his house where he was staying so that he could also take shelter from the unrelenting bombardment. Cornwallis decided to get rid of the army's horses. He couldn't afford to feed them, and he did not want to allow the enemy to capture them. So he ordered all of the horses slaughtered. The carcasses were dumped into the York River, but the tides brought many of the rotting corpses back to shore, where the stink must have become unbearable. Also, with the British were hundreds of escaped slaves. Cornwallis had allowed them within his lines, so long as they were the slaves of rebels, but as the siege continued, he had to stop feeding them and he could not provide them with any shelter from the enemy's fire. Now, despite all efforts, the British forces continued to dwindle, not only from enemy fire, but disease also took its toll. Food and supplies were running short. Many of the British cannons had been destroyed by enemy fire. Every day, the British commander found the situation becoming increasingly desperate. Despite French control of the Chesapeake, the British were able to slip smaller boats in and out of Yorktown. 
Cornwallis was able to send and receive messages with General Clinton in New York. On October 9th, Cornwallis sent a desperate letter to Clinton that he needed support now. He sent reports of enemy trenches and the near-continuous fire from artillery. His letter reported about 70 men killed, and then in a proscript, which he wrote a few hours later, he noted that the casualty rate had gone up to over 100. The following day, although his message had not yet reached Clinton, Cornwallis received another letter from Clinton promising to arrive soon with reinforcements. Clinton told him that Admiral Digby had arrived and that he hoped the relief fleet would depart New York on October 12th. As I said earlier, in addition to the main British force at Yorktown, they still held a smaller fortification on the other side of the York River at Gloucester Point. The Allies had deployed a force of French Marines and Virginia militia to keep the British there occupied, but they did not attempt to storm the position. The British also still had a warship, the Charon, anchored just offshore. The French Navy did not want to get that close to British lines and allowed the enemy ship to remain. On the night of October 10th, the French army began firing hotshot at the Charon. Hotshot is cannonballs that are heated in a fire so that when they come into contact with wood, they would start a fire and hopefully burn the ship. The fire managed to burn the ship, completely destroying it. The following night, the Continentals began work on a second line of trenches, this one only a little more than 300 yards from the British line. Once again, they completed enough work under cover of darkness in one night to provide the new defensive trench. The second trench was a little shorter than the first one because the Allies could not dig it all the way to the river. Although the British had given up most of their redoubts, they still held two redoubts, known as Redoubts 9 and 10, that blocked the further entrenchment. The Allies, however, could fire from the closer range and had increased the total number of artillery pieces to 71. Inside the British lines, things seemed to become only more desperate. Even so, Cornwallis kept up the Army's morale with the hope that reinforcements from New York should be arriving any day. The British cannons still had plenty of ammunition, and continued to exchange heavy fire with the enemy. Many of the Continental officers who were commanding the men in the trenches, taking considerable enemy fire, argued that it was time to charge the enemy lines and finish the battle. Both sides knew that the French fleet was going to leave soon, and both expected a British relief fleet to arrive at any time, so they couldn't just sit around and wait forever. Washington and Rochambeau waited a few days to see if the second set of trenches had any impact on the enemy's will to fight. As the enemy continued fighting, they agreed to an assault on Redoubts 9 and 10. Washington assigned General Lafayette to take Redoubt 10. Rochambeau would assign a French detachment under the Baron de Viomenil to take Redoubt number 9 at the same time. Given the difficulty of the assault, Viomenil argued that the French should take both redoubts and leave the Continentals out of it. Lafayette took that as an insult to his Continentals and quickly quashed that idea. For the Continental assault, Lafayette chose Colonel Jean-Joseph Sobrador de Gimard to lead the assault. This colonel was a fellow Frenchman who had come to America with Lafayette 
and was serving in the Continental Army under Lafayette for many years. He had served as Lafayette's aide, and in 1780 had taken command of an infantry regiment. Colonel Hamilton was not happy with Lafayette's choice. Hamilton and Lafayette had been good friends for many years. Leading the assault on the redoubt was a high-profile command that would help any career if it came off successfully. Hamilton wanted to lead the assault himself, but Lafayette would not budge. Hamilton then appealed directly to General Washington. We don't know exactly what Hamilton argued with Washington, but for whatever reason, Washington sided with Hamilton and instructed Lafayette to let Hamilton lead the assault. Another former Washington aide and a friend of Hamilton and Lafayette's, Colonel John Lawrence, was given the responsibility to move behind the redoubt and cut off any enemy escape. The 1st Rhode Island Regiment was chosen to take part in the assault. The regiment was often called the Black Regiment because of the high number of African-American soldiers in its ranks. Washington personally addressed the division that was going to assault the redoubts. The men got into position on the evening of October 14th with a plan to lay low until after dark. When they heard the signal from the French artillery, 400 Continentals would rise up and storm Redoubt Number 10. Another 400 French soldiers would rise up and storm Redoubt Number 9. Sappers would cut through the British abatis. They would drop bundles of sticks into the trenches around the redoubts. Attackers would carry ladders to get over the enemy walls. All of this had to happen under enemy musket and cannon fire. Lafayette ordered that all guns not be loaded so that a premature fire would not alert the enemy to the attack. The assault would be fought with swords and bayonets. It was a difficult task, but when the signal came at around 8 p.m., the attackers rose and stormed the forts. Both divisions stormed the redoubts and took on the enemy in hand-to-hand combat. Once the Continentals entered redoubt number 10, the fight was over in a matter of minutes. The Americans managed to storm and take Redoubt 10 first, while the French were still cutting out the abatis in front of Redoubt No. 9. Recalling that the French commander's suggestion that the Continentals were not up to the task, Lafayette stood up on the Redoubt wall to proclaim that his men had taken the Redoubt and called out to the French commander to ask how they were doing. The angry Baron de Villonminil shouted back that he would be there in five minutes. The French then stormed and took Redoubt No. 9. The French managed to capture 120 enemy soldiers in Redoubt No. 9, and the Americans captured about 70 in Redoubt No. 10. By the following morning, both redoubts were incorporated into the Allied lines. The capture of the redoubts only made things more desperate for Cornwallis's army. Without the food to feed them, Cornwallis drove the escaped slaves out of his lines and toward the enemy. The desperate escapees ended up setting up camp in the middle of the battlefield between the two lines, denied the protection of the British, and unwilling to return to the slavery that awaited them behind the American lines. General Henry Knox brought up American cannons into Redoubt No. 10. The Allied artillery barrage against the British in Yorktown continued its incessant pace, only from a much closer range now. By the morning of October 16th, the British position was becoming desperate. Cornwallis knew that unless a British relief force arrived soon, he could not continue to defend against the siege. In a desperate attempt 
to stop the enemy cannons, Cornwallis ordered Hessian commander Johann Ewald to storm the French artillery and spike their cannons. The Hessians managed to get to the enemy batteries, but found that the nails they had brought to spike the cannons were too large. Instead, they jammed bayonets into the fuse holes and broke them off and withdrew. Unfortunately for the British, the French were able to remove the bayonets and resume their fire. With the British situation becoming even more desperate, Cornwallis realized that unless a British relief force arrived within days, he would almost certainly have to surrender. And next week, we're going to find out how that goes at The Surrender at Yorktown. This episode is supported by the food delivery service, Factor. It's spring now, and we all want to spend more time outdoors, enjoying life, not the kitchen. Factor ensures you have fresh, never-frozen, chef-crafted, dietitian approved meals that you can prepare in just two minutes. Each week, you get a menu of 35 meal options, as well as 60 add-ons, including breakfasts, on-the-go lunches, snacks, and beverages. You can customize your orders to get as much or as little as you want each week and can pause or make changes to your orders at any time. Factor is less expensive than takeout and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. It's the perfect solution if you're looking for fast, upscale options done easily. Now, they even have a special deal for fans of the American Revolution podcast. Head to factormeals.com ARP50 and use that code ARP50 to get 50% off your first box, plus 20% off your next box. That's code ARP50 at factormeals.com slash ARP50 to get 50% off your first box, plus 20% off your next box while your subscription is active. Hey, thanks for joining the American Revolution Podcast After Show, part of the Airwave Media Network. Thanks to my Patreon supporters in the Alexander Hamilton Club, George Davis, Mike Hager, John Salentano, Michael Mulhern, and the Sons of the American Revolution, which you can check out at fastfunhistory.com. Thanks to Robert Morris Circle supporters, Kurt Avard and Anthony McGinnis. And thanks also to James Royer for a one-time gift via PayPal. I gratefully accept support via PayPal and Venmo, as well as ongoing support via Patreon. The Siege of Yorktown is interesting to me on many levels. It was a highly professionally run battle, using the best battlefield tactics known at the time, and I kind of like to compare this with the Siege of Boston back in 1775, when the American leaders looked like the bunch of rank amateurs that they were. Six years later, they had the experience and expertise to run a much more professional campaign. Many witnesses at the time remarked at how pathetic the Continental soldiers looked because so many of them were barefoot and wearing tattered rags rather than a real uniform. But at the same time, they also noted that the men were professional and behaved like experienced and disciplined soldiers, which they had become over many years of hard work and effort. It's also important to remember the role that the French army played in this battle. Other than the Siege of Savannah, Yorktown was the only time the French army involved itself in significant numbers. In this case, the French actually outnumbered the Continentals. Now, if you add in the militia, there were more Americans there than French, 
But the French really did have a substantial part in the siege and the ultimate victory at Yorktown. And no doubt, French officers contributed greatly to the planning and success of the siege itself. I mentioned last week that I thought both sides in the naval battle made quite a few mistakes, and if either side had been more on the ball, things could have been very different. In the case of the armies, I don't think either side really made any mistakes. Uh, You know, we might look in hindsight and wonder why Cornwallis didn't attempt to escape earlier when he had a chance, but he really didn't know that he wasn't going to get the reinforcements that he was promised. If he had left, he easily could have been criticized for leaving his defenses and then being caught out on the march by these much larger armies. So while we know now that the decision he made didn't turn out very well, it wasn't nearly as obvious with the information that he had at the time. So I have a hard time calling that a mistake. The other subplot that I found interesting was the role of Alexander Hamilton, the Marquis de Lafayette, and John Lawrence at Yorktown. We've talked about these officers before. They all had become really good friends. They were all around the same age, fairly young when the war began. They were all born in the mid-1750s, and they'd all come from very different worlds. Hamilton came from a poor Caribbean family. Lawrence was the son of a wealthy South Carolinian. And Lafayette, of course, was born into French aristocracy. All three men had served as aides to General Washington at the same time, and they became the closest of friends. All of them left Washington to take field commands and go their separate ways and have lots of their own adventures, and then all returned together, not just for Yorktown, but specifically the capture of Redoubt Number 10, the last major assault of the last major battle of the war. If I had read this in a fiction novel, I probably would have thought it rather trite and unrealistic for the author to bring these three characters back all together for the exciting conclusion. But, as they say, truth is stranger than fiction. I actually wish someone would make a movie about the adventures of Hamilton, Lafayette, and Lawrence. It would be a great story that would almost write itself. My book recommendation this week is The Battle of Yorktown, 1781, A Reassessment by John Granger. I've already recommended a number of books on Yorktown, and each of them have something interesting to offer. What I liked about this one was his focus on the military aspects of the battle itself. The descriptions of the battle in the book are extensive, as are the quotes from a great many primary sources. The author, Granger, is a retired British history professor. He's written a great many military history books, although most of them are about the ancient world, This book was first published in 2005. If you want to understand what the battle itself was like, I think this book does a great job. Again, the title is The Battle of Yorktown, 1781, A Reassessment, by John Granger. There's also a borrow-only copy of the book on archive.org if you just want to take a quick look at it. My online recommendation is another source that focuses on the military aspects of the battle. It's called March to Victory, Washington, Rochambeau, and the Yorktown Campaign of 1781. This is another good military history of the battle and the events leading up to it. It's much shorter, less than 50 pages, and it's available as a PDF from the U.S. Army's military history site. Which, as an aside, if you like military history, they have hundreds of books and publications from all wars and everything is available as free downloadable PDF files. So you may want to check that out as well. 
This one, The March to Victory, was written by Robert Selig, who is an independent historian and a historical consultant that's done a lot of work for the military. If you're interested, check out March to Victory. And as always, I've included direct links on my blog and website. My question this week asks, were gunshot wounds in the American Revolution more lethal than ones today? Well, the short answer is yes. And this is for a number of reasons. Musket balls made of soft lead hitting the body tended to do more damage than modern bullets. The lead would expand when coming into contact with the body, meaning exit wounds were much larger than entry wounds. And in most cases, the wouldn't exit at all, but would actually lodge in the body, which was another danger altogether. Most modern bullets, other than those designed to cause greater damage, like hollow points or something, tend to move cleanly through the body so that if the bullet itself doesn't hit anything critical, the chances of survival just on that basis alone are probably much higher. But the real reason that gunshot wounds were far more lethal was the availability of medical care and the quality. First, let's talk about availability. The armies at this time did not have medics on the field. If you got shot, your comrades were taught to ignore you and to maintain their lines. As a result, you would lie on the field receiving no care during the battle. When the battle was over, sometimes armies had time to come back and assist the wounded. If it was an enemy army that came back, in many cases they might just put a bayonet through you to finish you off. There were also many recorded cases of the dying just being left on the field to die from dehydration or eaten by wolves. There was no ethos of no one left behind like we often have today. If you were lucky enough to get pulled off the field after battle, you might get thrown into the back of a wagon and have to ride and be jostled for several days until they could find someone to take care of you. And that someone was not necessarily a medical professional. You might just be left off at a farmhouse where an overwhelmed family might be doing their best to make you comfortable, along with 10 or 20 of your fellow casualties, and they just kind of wait and see if you survived. So a great many wounded never even got any medical care. Survival was much more the result of whether your body could heal itself. But let's say you did get to a physician, and I'm careful to use the word physician rather than doctor because most healers did not have a medical degree. These were just guys that did an apprenticeship with another physician and then started calling themselves one once they felt they were ready. Many of these people, who even had some element of medical training before the war, had relatively little experience with gunshot wounds. But even if you got one of the best medical physicians that were around, and even if he had time to focus on you and not a hundred other casualties, medical care was barbaric by modern standards. The medical community did not really understand germs or infection. You might undergo surgery with dirty instruments. Someone might just stick a finger in your wound to try to see if they could dig out that musket ball. You might get placed in a bed where someone else had just died from a horribly communicable disease. Many soldiers often reported that they would not go to the hospital when sick because they were more likely to be exposed to many other diseases and would actually have an increased chance of dying. Even a wound to the arm or the leg could easily result in infection or gangrene that could kill you. Many surgeons would recommend amputation, which was done without anesthesia. Removing a limb at the time might lead to too much blood loss or infection, which could also kill you. So the quality of medical care 
also contributed greatly to mortality rates. But when we hear reports about so many killed and so many wounded in battle, we have to remember that a fairly large number of those wounded would likely be dead in a matter of days or weeks. I haven't found any really good survival rate statistics from the American Revolution, because nobody just kept records on that. I have seen a study from the Civil War that said an abdominal wound had a 90% death rate. Today, a similar wound would have only about a 10% death rate. So yes, death from a gun injury was very much higher in the American Revolution than it is today. If you have a question you'd like me to answer, please reach out to me either via email or on Twitter, Facebook, Quora, or Reddit. Well, that's all for this week. I hope you will join me again next week for another American Revolution podcast.